Doesn't it? This seems a little bit strange. If you've only been uh, at London City Presbyterian Church for a number of months, you'll kind of already have seen how we tend to do things at LCPC, that we tend normally to work through the Bible. That's how we roll, isn't it? We work in sermon series. And look at us tonight. <laughs> you see the sermon title here, or the sermon section. Here is us looking at... Uh, a couple of verses at the end of a chapter in the middle of a, of a book in the middle of the Old Testament. It seems a bit random, uh, doesn't it, this evening? Well, it's not quite as odd as it might seem. Over the past number of years, at various points, we at London City Presbyterian Church have been delving into this present chapter. Various points. Let's say it's between sermon series or maybe it is at a holiday time or something like that, that we have looked at, delved into, studied various sections in Isaiah chapter 53. And that's what we're doing again tonight, that this evening, you and I come to what is actually the sort of conclusion or the concluding scene of Isaiah chapter 53. That's the plan. But you're right, it's maybe been quite a while since we have looked at Isaiah chapter 53, so let us refresh our memories. What is Isaiah 53? It's a song. That's what it is. It's a poem or a song. Now it is uh, the fourth of four servant songs in this part of Isaiah. And it's also a song, now maybe even if you look at the text, you'll see this. It's a song that is broken up into five separate parts, or stanzas we call them. And each of these five parts is of three verses in length. So it's beautifully arranged, this song or poem. But what is its main purpose Well, the main purpose here is to answer the question that the people of Israel have been asking in the previous section of the book. What's the question? How is it that God is going to save us? The people of Israel have been asking, how is it that God is going to redeem us from our sin? And what is the answer that this chapter gives? Well, here in these verses, God promises to send his servant He promises to send the arm of the Lord and to send him to die in his people's place. So in light of that, let me state the obvious. This is a song about your Lord. Throughout the New Testament, the New Testament authors, they frequently quote Isaiah 53 in reference to Jesus of Nazareth. Tonight, I know it's Sunday and it's late and everyone's tired. This is not irrelevant stuff. This is not distant stuff. This is a portion of scripture that is about the one who has lived and died and risen for you. And I think the first thing that we have to note here, so it's Isaiah 53, now it's verses 10 to 12, closing stanza. The first thing that we have to notice here, I think, is the Father's satisfaction. The Father's satisfaction. So what do we see about that here? Okay, let's let's be frank. 
and honest about this. What we've seen thus far in Isaiah 53, now you picked it up even from Adrian reading this chapter. What we've seen thus far has been brutal, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's a vicious chapter. So you're dealing here with a man who is innocent, and he's a, he's a man who's a sort of virtuous man. And, and wow, is he suffering. Did you pick up on that? Like throughout the chapter, he's been beaten, battered, despised, rejected, turned away, spat upon. In fact, you can see he's not just suffered. What's happened here in Isaiah 52? He has suffered and he has died. So the question that we are supposed to be asking at this juncture in Isaiah 53 is this. How on earth has God allowed such a thing to happen? Do you understand? You're supposed to be asking this. When we get into this last stanza, you're supposed to be asking, but I mean, is this, is this an accident? I mean, is this something outside of God's control? An innocent man suffering, dying like this. How on earth has, has God been able to, 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 why has he let this happen? Well, that question is answered as soon as you get into the stanza. At the very beginning of verse 10, that question is answered, and it is a question that shakes this world to its foundations. Look at it. You start at verse 10. How can this happen? Look, it was... Look at those next two words. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, I, I ask you, do you see what that means? It means that God didn't just know about this horrendous death of an innocent man. It means even that God was not just involved in the death. We learned that earlier on in Isaiah chapter 53. It means more than that. It means this, that that death was planned. It actually means that the Lord our God was pleased with the death of this innocent man. Now that raises, doesn't it, all manner of issues for us. Chief amongst them is this. Why? Like, why is it that God who is just and a God who is, he's, well, he's supposed to be a holy God. How can he delight in the death of an innocent man? Again, that question is answered here because read on, please read on in, in, in verse 10. I'm asking you what sort of death did this man die? Do you read on? Do you see what sort of death did he die? It says, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief when his soul makes what? What sort of death? An offering for guilt. So what's that? What is an offering for guilt? Well, we're really basking in the Old Testament law today, aren't we? If you're here this morning, we begun our service in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And then this evening, what happens, we begin our evening Easter service and we begin it in Leviticus chapter 5 with the sacrificial system. Now, I look around and I know that most of you have been, uh, you're thoroughly well versed in scripture, aren't you? A lot of you have been in the church since you were young. You know the sacrificial system. You know how it worked. But play with me here, okay? Consider it again. What happened in the sacrificial system? So you had a man, let's say he's a sinner, okay? Sinner. 
And he wants his sin dealt with. So what does he do? He finds an animal. What sort of animal did it have to be? A spotless animal without defect. Now where does he go with it? Who does he take it to? Takes it to the priest. And what does the priest do? The priest slaughters the animal. Spills the blood of the animal. Sprinkles the blood of the animal. Now here's my question to you. Why? Now, what was being achieved in the slaughter of the animal? This was the only way for our God's anger to be appeased at that man. Isn't it? That the slaughter of this animal, on a temporary basis, and symbolically, yes, but it was the only way for God's wrath to be satisfied at the sin of this person. So I am now asking you, do you see why it is that God is content and pleased with Isaiah 53? I mean, what is this here pointing you to? Is this about a foreshadow? Is this about a, another type of atonement? No, what's Isaiah 53 pointing us to? It's pointing to us to a human death. A man without defect. Do you see why God is pleased here? At last, this was the death that truly appeased his anger. That's what we're dealing with. At last, at last at the cross, here was the death that truly satisfied God's wrath. Our sin, reconciliation could now at last be had. Do you see why God is happy? Do you see why it's God's will? Now, if you have your finger on the, the theological pulse, in any way at all, uh, you'll know that what I'm talking about just now is rather controversial. You'll know that this doctrine is called penal substitutionary atonement. It's the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of God the Father punishing God the Son for our sin. Penal substitution. You will know that that is a contentious doctrine. That, say the last 10 years, maybe the last 15 years. In this country especially, it's been very controversial. In fact, Brad's College has been at the forefront of defending this doctrine. That some opponents to this have branded what I'm talking about just now. Ready for the term? They brand it cosmic now I think you and I, even in the text that we've got in front of us just now, we can see it's not cosmic child abuse. You can see that in a couple of ways. See, I'm asking you this question. Who is it in Isaiah 53 and verse 10 who actually makes the offering for guilt? Do you see it? Look at it, verse 10. Who makes the offering? His soul makes the offering. Now, who's the his? It's the servant. Do you see? This is not something that is imposed upon the servant. As we're going to come back to later on, this is something that the servant enters voluntarily. Like the servant is engaged. He's involved. The servant is actually the one who is making the offering for guilt. It's not cosmic child abuse. But more than that, Consider how God's will here in verse 10 progresses. Because I'm again asking you this question. What happens upon the servant's death? We're in Easter Sunday. 
What happens after the servant's death? Read on. Look, his soul makes an offering for guilt and, ah, isn't it beautiful? Look, he shall, the servant, see his offspring. Look at the next part. He shall prolong his days. And you see what that refers to. It's Easter Sunday. You know what it refers to. The servant would live on. Isn't that what this is? That the father's will was not just to crush him. The father's will was then to raise him up and to bless the servant. That though, think of this earlier on in the song. Do you remember that there was the many people, they looked on at the servant at the point of death and his suffering and all of the crowd assumed, ah, he must be cursed by God. Do you remember what they said? I think it's verse 10. They say his offspring is cut off. The generations, he's, he's not going to have any offspring. So cursed is he. And what is God's will for the servant? That the servant would have all the many who have strayed from God come back and become his children. The children of God. And look even at the last line of verse 10. This great plan. It would also involve the servant going on to become the very executor of the Father's will. The plan to not just raise the servant. But to raise him to the supreme power in the whole wide world. The father's not just crushing the servant. Do you see? He is raising him up at the last. Now I wonder this. All this is very theological. I, I, I wonder if you see what it means for you in your present life as a Christian. Cause I, I love it. Because consider it. What does it mean? If God was willing to do this, if your God was willing to enact a plan that involved the slaying of his own son in order to save you, what does it mean? What must it mean? It must mean that God the Father, this evening... He looks on into this place just now, knowing all things. And if God has done this, if he's seen his son slain for you, what does it mean? It means that tonight he looks on at you and he must love you in Christ Jesus. And he must love you so very, very much. We see here the father's satisfaction. Second thing, we see the servant's satisfaction. The servant's satisfaction. Okay, I think if you follow it, don't you? In verse 10, we see that the father himself delights in the saving death of the servant. So you've got that. The father is delighting in this. As we move on in the chapter, we see that he is not the only one delighting. I wonder if you'd follow me if I read the beginning of verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, we are told that the servant too shall see and be satisfied. So do you see what we're saying here? The father, in verse 10, is satisfied with this work of atonement. But the next thing we're seeing is that the servant too is satisfied with what he sees. He sees and is satisfied. Now, I think you'd probably go along with me if I was to say even that confirms the resurrection. 
if you think about it, that if the servant after he has been killed is able to see <laughs> something, well, he's risen from the dead. Doesn't take a genius to work that out. He, he can see. The question that we have to answer is what is he seeing that brings him such satisfaction? He rises after this work, he looks on, and he is delighted. So what is he seeing that brings such satisfaction to his heart? Well, there are two sides to this. There's a negative side, and there's a positive side. I think we see the negative. If you look at the last line of verse 11, the last line of verse 11, he's satisfied. Why? Because he has borne his people's iniquity and you know, I'm sure what you are being pointed to there, friends, that at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, he took the sins of his people. And you've heard that from me a hundred thousand times. But just consider the enormity of what it means for you and your present existence. Listen, the sexual immorality and uh, the anger and uh, the theft, the deceit, the impatience, the irreverence that, that you have before God, all of that, what's happened, that Jesus Christ has, has, has not only accepted all of this, What has he done? He has been punished for all of that as though it were he that had committed all of that sin. He has borne the sin of his people. That's the negative side of it, but there is a positive side here as well. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me when it comes to reading books. I'm I'm hopeless at reading books. All I do is read books, but I don't... I wish I could just pick up a book and read it. I end up sort of having like three or four different books on the go at the same time. And I never, because of that, get the book finished, you know. And there's one book that I've been reading for about six months and I just cannot get it finished. It's a biography, a biography uh, of a man called Martin Lloyd-Jones, who some of you probably have heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'll tell you the reason that I'm reading the book. It was lying around in the house. And I saw the back cover of the book. And do you know how, like, in a lot of books, they'll have a little positive comment here and there about the book? This book had a lot of positive comments about Martin Lloyd-Jones. I, honestly, it stopped me in my tracks when I read about the man. G.I. Packer. Again, you've probably heard of G.I. Packer. He says on the back cover, he says, Martin Lloyd-Jones was the greatest man. I have ever known. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a nice thing to say of anyone, really, to see that. The next quote says, uh, to know Martin Lloyd-Jones, you have to know, first of all, that he was a man of prayer. And then second of all, you have to know that he was an evangelist. I was reading that, and I sort of saw that, and I thought, that sounds, he sounds awesome. I have to know more about Martin Lloyd-Jones. So what, so I, I pick, I pick up the book, and now, do you see that that is what's going on here? Like up to now, God has shown us in Isaiah 53 so much about the work 
You see so much about the ministry of the servant. All of a sudden it changes here and God shows us something about the person, something about the credentials of the servant. And I think it should stop you and me in our tracks because look at uh, the middle of verse 11. The servant, first of all, is said to be a man of knowledge. What does that mean? Do you see what it means? He is a man who is able to win salvation out of his unique understanding of what it is that God required. He's a man of knowledge. But it's the next one that is most important. Look what else is said, middle of verse 11. Who is this man? He was the righteous one. And friends, do you see what that does? Do you see what it does? It leads us into the positive side of the servant's work. What has the servant been able to do? You say to me, yes, he's taken our sin. He's borne our iniquity. He's taken all of our sin. What else has he been able to do? He is the righteous one. He is the unblemished one. He has been able to impute his righteousness to you. He's the righteous one. He is the one without defect. He's been able to take that righteousness and he's been able to give you. Do you see what has taken place at the cross of Jesus Christ? A transaction's happened. There's been a trade-off at Calvary that the servant has been rendered guilty by your sin. But the people of God, we've been rendered spotless in the sight of the Almighty, spotless because of His holiness and righteousness. Uh, again, I think we, we look at this, that gospel truth, we should rejoice, we should delight. I wonder if you're actually doing that tonight. And I, I, I've got a, a question for you, friends, as the congregation here. Is it the case that as a Christian this evening, your sin is wearing you down? Is it the case tonight that even as you look at these things and you come to church tonight, that you're kind of despairing about your own heart and the way that you're living just now. Is that true of you? Are you thinking, well, how can God, I know that the minister says this, I know the Bible says this, but how can God really love me if I'm living the way that I'm living just now and the way, you know, the things that I'm capable of? You're thinking like that? You're despairing as a Christian because of these things. Do you understand what God is doing tonight, this Easter evening? He's showing you how you actually stand before him. He's saying to you tonight, don't you understand your sin, all of that sin that's bothering you is gone. Like it's been taken away. It's not on you anymore. And what else is true? How do you stand before God? Do you see what God is showing you tonight? You stand before God and you are entirely wrapped, entirely covered, enveloped by the holiness of someone else. You stand before God and you are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do you not see? Do you not see how wonderful it is? What do we say in the first point? The Father, God, He looks on at you. He is satisfied. He is rejoicing, delighting in you. What's the second point though? The Son of God, your Savior this evening, He also looks on at you. What does He think as He looks on at you tonight? Your Savior Jesus Christ, He is satisfied so we see the father's satisfaction 
we see the servant satisfaction. We end with the third one. The people's satisfaction. The people's satisfaction. If somebody could wake up John Angus at the back as he drops stuff. <laughs> I'll pay for that later on. So the people's satisfaction. Okay, now Stephen King. We've all heard of Stephen King. Uh, the American author. He once wrote a book uh, about writing. Stephen King wrote a book about how to write well. And in the book, he uh, wrote about conclusions to novels. And he said, of course, conclusions are important. In fact, one thing a conclusion must never be is a conclusion must never be dull. Okay, conclusion, if you ever set to writing a book, must never be dull. On first reading... It would appear that Isaiah the prophet had not read that golden rule. Uh, because, on first reading this majestic chapter, glorious chapter of scripture, it seems to end in a bit of an anti-climax, to be honest. Doesn't it? You look at verse 12, the start of verse 12. It seems to suggest that after all of this, and all of the suffering, and all of this, pain and then all of this exaltation what is the reward it seems to suggest that it's a share of a prize and they share it with lots and lots and lots and lots of other people so it's, you know, it seems it seems a bit anticlimactic it's hardly inspiring it's not like that of course I don't think that's how to understand this phrase at all I think what's happening in verse 12 is because of the servant's work God is declaring that yes, the servant is going to receive a reward, but it is going to be a great reward, a great prize. That the prize is going to be, wait for this, all of the people that he has redeemed. Now think about what that means. The prize for this work of atonement for the Lord Jesus Christ is the church. Now what does that mean? <laughs> that means that you are the great reward of this work of Calvary and that empty tomb. You are the reward. Now, just in case um, we're in danger of forgetting why this reward is due, what God actually does is he reminds us at the end, as, this, as he brings it into land here. So I'll, I'll just turn this over to you because we're concluding with this. We're just going to end with this. Why do you think the servant... Is due such a reward? If I was to ask you that, what would you say? Maybe you would say it is because he died. Yeah, he suffered and died. Maybe you would say that it's because he's due this because he suffered and died for his people or he suffered and died for sin. And all of that is true, but it's not the reason. The servant is due the reward because, friends, he did all of this willingly. He did all of this voluntarily. And isn't that what's brought out here at the end? Look at verse 12 here. The servant poured out his own soul to death. Do you see what's saying? Willingly, he had his blood poured out for you and for me. Willingly. Look at the next bit. That he was also numbered with the transgressors. So again, voluntarily willing to be numbered with you and me. You know, rebels, filthy, willingly. And then look at the last bit. That he made intercession for his people. Not, it's not intercession by prayer. 
It is intercession by readily, willingly giving up his life in order to bridge that gap between you and God. Do you understand all of the suffering we spoke about in Isaiah 53? That brutality, all of it, it was done voluntarily, entered into willingly because Jesus Christ loves you. And so I, I don't know where you are spiritually as a Christian this evening. You know, maybe it is that you're in a dry, weary wilderness, are you? You're struggling with the Christian life. See here tonight your place of spiritual satisfaction. Consider in Isaiah 53 what God has done for you. And you tonight, tonight, come back to your God. I mean, he loves you so much that before he created the world, he created a plan for your salvation. Before he even created the world. And it was a plan that saw not only the Father and the Son agree to save you. It was a plan where the Father and the Son, they made you the award for atonement. Isn't that epic? You are the intra-Trinitarian prize. And I'll end like this. Um, There is a word. I wonder if you notice this. There's a word that's repeated all the way through Isaiah 53. It's the word, the many. Like the many at the beginning, they look on at the suffering. There's the many at the end here who are accounted righteous. So I've got a question for you as we end. Are you amongst the many? Are you amongst the many who are by God here accounted righteous? If you are not, understand that this Easter evening, that's available to you. See the status that we're talking about, covered in Christ's righteousness before God, not facing judgment, your sin gone from you. That status available to you tonight if you will only bow the knee and trust in Jesus Christ. Will you do that this evening? Will you bow and will you put trust, will you believe In Jesus Christ, the risen and exalted arm of the Lord. Let's pray.